Welcome to Polly Wanna Podcast, a polyamory podcast. We're about to curse and talk about sex a lot. So don't say that I didn't warn you. I'm your host, Britt Bosacek. I'm not a professional, I'm not an expert, and I'm not a unicorn. Enjoy the show. One of the things that I really appreciate about living in Houston is that I know a lot of queer and polyamorous people, and I feel like I'm super privileged in that way, and I get to live in the city as well, which is a huge privilege I'm so grateful for, and it's not without really hard work and a torturous day job, but still one of the benefits of that, and probably the most prominent one in my life is that I get to be exposed to people that are like me all the time. And I was raised to believe that the country white male kind of people are the only kind of people or the most important kind of people. And being in this space now, it's really hard to remember my gratitude all of the time. And it's also really hard to remember that I'm in a place that's different from other people. There are a lot of people that grew up differently than me, even here in Houston, because it's still the South. And I recently had to explain polyamory to someone. Um, I was in the back of a lift and then they told me about every threesome that they had ever had an explicit sexual detail. Um, And then when I got to my destination after the lift, planning on telling this really funny story about how I I suggested polyamory to the driver um, in conversation and then the driver told me sexually explicit stories. Um, I was interrupted by, oh, well, you brought that upon yourself by mentioning polyamory in the first place. And it gave me one of those like life flashes before your eyes kind of moment where I remembered every time in my life when I had told a guy I was polyamorous and they immediately assumed that all I wanted to do was have threesomes with him and his girlfriend or him and another girl. And that happened so consistently from the Lyft driver who I don't know um, to someone that I actually do kind of know who's just as liberal and just as creative and just as queer. And that assumption spanned between someone very different from me to someone very like me. And the surprise of that woke me up to the fact that I should always remember that not everybody knows exactly what we go through. And that polyamory sounds fun, Um, but when we sexualize polyamory, it actually hurts people's feelings. My feelings were hurt when I tried to connect with my Lyft driver and instead I got roped into this highly sexual conversation that I didn't consent to. And my feelings were hurt when I tried to connect with someone who I thought was like me about it and they seemed to feel the same way. That because I was polyamorous that I was probably okay with it. Um, and when I say I'm polyamorous, that's what I mean. I'm writing this piece right now called Sexualization Without Representation. And the more research that I do for it and the more media examples that I find, the more frustrating it becomes. And it didn't start with polyamory, but I have been reading and thinking about it so much that I managed to see the pattern in my life as well. And so that might have been why I was sensitive about the Lyft driver and the person that I met at a bar because it enforced this pattern that I had been looking at, which 
I truly believe exists that in order for a marginalized group to make it into mainstream social conversations, they have to be found conventionally attractive to make them palatable. And I think that the easiest thing for people to latch to in non-monogamy is the sex because it's fun and we like sex and I love sex. I'm a sex positivity educator and I think it's really important, but I don't want the sexual part of polyamory to be taken more seriously than the societal impact of erasure of non-monogamy. And I want that to be true for every situation in which someone who's marginalized thinks that they have to be sexual in order to get approval from the world. Because the world has historically looked like just one white male standing there waiting for you to perform the way that he thinks you should. And when I get that image in my head while I'm watching this play out, for people that are trans or non-binary or intersex or polyamorous or queer or of color, this idea that there's some way that someone will approve you to be talked about in a serious way. It's heartbreaking because the approval, you're here and that's all you need to be is here. And it is really unfortunate that we will constantly have to justify that we are here some far more than me for sure, in a way that we might not be comfortable with or that we didn't consent to. And as we enter a more sexually awakened age of lift drivers and lesbians on patios, I think that it is important to remember that you should be getting consent before you have conversations about sex with people. Luckily, it did not trigger anything or traumatize me, but sex is a really graphic topic that not everybody is willing to talk about. And I hope that people never minimize your ability to love a bunch of people at a time to their pornographic fantasy of having a threesome. Thank you so much to everyone that has become a patron on my Patreon. I get to put out some really exciting content using that platform. I love it so much and I love all of the people that are reacting to my stuff. It's really artistically validating. So if you like this podcast, you might like the Patreon. And you can see comedy content, videos from Sell Your Body Show, Polywana Podcast After Dark, and all of my Patreon subscribers have access to the phone number to call into the show so that you can leave a voicemail for us. So it doesn't have to be on the show. I will play some of them on the show, but if you don't want it to be on the show, you can just call and talk to us, which has been so fun, by the way. That phone number was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. So if you're interested in that, please go to patreon.com slash Vasacek, which is V-A-S-I-C-E-K, which is my last name that I'm blasphemizing for my work. And I really appreciate you just even listening to this podcast right now. It really means a lot to me that people even care. Enjoy the rest of the show. Immortalized by the Greek legends, Amazons were a tribe of ferocious and fearsome women warriors, tracing back to Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and into the epic cycles depicting the Trojan War, which features one of the more famous depictions of Amazonian women, particularly Penthesilea, the queen of the Amazons who was killed and loved by Achilles. 
A lot of ancient Greek art depicted Amazons in battle, and they portrayed them as this nation of all-female warriors, which kind of mutated into this super misogynistic scorn that is very much alive today, surprise, surprise, in which powerful women are kind of knocked down a peg by insecure crybabies who say they must be either lesbians or sluts. You know, a classic bit. Truly timeless. So the word Amazon itself in this context has nothing to do with the river in South America or its tribes. Uh, The etymology is disputed, but some interpretations suggest vague Iranian root words, which mean either warriors or without husbands. Or Greek root words, meaning without breasts, with girdles, and my personal favorites, antagonistic to men or just the equal of men, which is very interesting and telling that a translation to antagonistic to men and equal to men is so closely related. It's almost as if there's like a pattern of fragile masculinity being threatened by strong women, but like, I don't know, I'm probably just imagining things or making it up for attention. For centuries, it was pretty difficult to separate fact from fiction, so some people thought that Amazons were just myth and legend, and as archaeology becomes a thing, certain archaeologists believe that they keep unearthing the bones of men from this massive region across the Eurasian steppe, because they found them buried with weapons or with battle wounds, and it was always assumed that they were male, which is also like notably interesting and probably meaningless and has nothing to do with sexism. But it wasn't until the 1990s, with the progression of DNA technology and bioarchaeology, that they realized about one-third of previously unearthed skeletons from this region were, in fact, warrior women. And that's because the Amazons were real people, belonging to a group like very generally called the Ancient Scythians. Scythia was a region of central Eurasia in classical antiquity, and it was named by the Greeks, and the Amazons didn't call themselves Amazons, that was also a name by the Greeks. Ancient Scythia itself occupied this massive swath of land encompassing Central Asia and parts of Eastern Europe from about the 11th century BC to about 400 AD. Even the term Scythian is more of an umbrella term that modern scholars use in archaeological context, but these were neighboring mounted nomadic tribes with roots in Persia and modern-day Iran, Siberia, Turkey, Ukraine, India, Nepal, China, Mongolia, and modern-day Kazakhstan. So we are specifically examining the Scythian Sarmatian tribes, ancestors whose descendants are modern nomadic Kazakhs of Western Mongolia who travel with the seasons seeking pastures for their animals. And their way of life is remarkably similar to that of their ancestors all the way back in 600 BC. You may have seen a documentary a couple of years ago about these people called The Eagle Huntress about a 13-year-old girl training to become the first female eagle hunter in 12 generations of her family. And that might be the biggest difference between ancient Scythian Sarmatian tribes and their modern Kazakh descendants, as the ancient culture itself was much more egalitarian. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus wrote a lot about the ancient Scythian way of life, noting that the boys and the girls were raised the same ways, and they were taught to hunt and fight with the same weapons, mastering the art of their infamous recurve bows. 
And the Scythians of the 5th century BC were those that inspired all of the Greek writers of the time who not only saw them in combat and in action, but also read about the girls who were hunting with horses and hounds and golden eagles, a practice that's still used today. These people were actually the very first humans to domesticate horses, not for riding, but for meat and milk. And eventually they began riding the horses and training them and bonding with them. So Scythian Amazon women were excellent horse riders. And this gave them a lot of advantages. And that's the reason why ancient Scythia as a region was so massive, was because they were able to travel these tremendous distances on horseback. It was like having an airplane back then. They could just go fucking anywhere. Amazon women were badass, tattooed warriors and hunters who smoked weed and opium. Like, the Scythians would literally hotbox their yurts and, like, close them off and inhale cannabis and opium and just, like, fucking chill, man. While at the very same time, these same women were mothers and wives with multiple husbands. That's right, y'all. We're flipping the gender script and we're getting into polyandry. When the Greeks wrote about Amazons, they highlighted in particular always this alleged promiscuity, painting them as these hypersexualized Lothario women because there's nothing more terrifying to insecure men than women with complete agency. But the truth is, is that these women had biological reasons for their polyandry, and that was to produce more vigorous children powerful warriors. So to better understand the sexual habits of the Scythians, scientists had to look at later nomadic tribes in the areas. And there they found traditions like welcoming outsiders from neighboring tribes or foreign lands completely by offering them their wives and women. This was basically like a Craigslist ad saying, fuck my wife. Okay. This was real hot wife kink stuff. And often their own husbands would be the ones to suggest these offerings, specifically in the hopes that their wives would get pregnant and freshen up the gene pool a little bit. It was a really common practice in small and isolated groups like these. Now, where did they get this idea? A horse, of course. Remember, these were the first people to domesticate horses. So they were absolute masters of animal husbandry, and they knew that it made biological sense to have multiple partners. Look at probably the most well-known example of polygamy in the West, fundamental Mormons who take multiple wives due to a Bible verse about being the mother of nations. That makes biological sense in creating a shit ton of kids, but with the same father, you're not getting a significant variance there. And Scythians were way more about quality over quantity. Herodotus wrote about observing the ancient Scythian customs, saying they frequently rode on horseback with their husbands hunting, in war took the field and wore the very same dress as the men, and quote, their marriage law lays it down that no girl shall wed until she has killed a man in battle. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it fucking rules. So these tattooed, weed-smoking, multi-husband bad bitches are shining examples to look up to for any non-monogamous woman with hetero leanings. Let's be honest, y'all, there's very much a stereotype of a polyamorous woman with a one-dip policy who was so often allowed to date women, but not other men. 
And there are two sides of this for me, which is that real instances of this are often centered around male insecurity, and they can be deeply dismissive of queer love between women, like a relationship with a woman is somehow less threatening to masculinity because it's not on the same level or not as serious or legitimate as a hetero relationship. But as someone who also leans slightly more queer, I also completely get the autonomous choice to date women and to keep one steady dude around because a good dude is harder to find, honestly. Regardless, the connection to this ancient precedent's biological background for polyandry and an egalitarian society in which women have utterly equal status to men is no accident. Liberation itself is definitively linked to bodily autonomy, the autonomy to fuck or not fuck, and to choose to love any person or persons across the vast spectrum of gender is an inherent human right as ancient as humanity itself. And that concludes my favorite segment ever, Non-Monogamous History with Catherine Way. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please do leave a review in iTunes. I know that it sounds like an extra step, but it's really important to us. So if you do nothing else today, let it be that. And maybe one good thing for another stranger who you've never met. I also have a lot of fun stuff coming up. If you go like my page, Polywana Podcast, on Facebook, you can see all of the cool new events that we're planning, um, some live shows coming up in 2019, and some, you know, kind of meetups for people to connect in the community and to maybe potentially date one day. So if you're interested in any of that, please go like the Polywana Podcast Facebook page as well. And if you want, you can... Also, subscribe to our Patreon page. I don't know if subscribe is the term. um, And get all of the bonus content. Thank you so much 